0: And we pray, amen Now, uh, when I was in Indonesia, I, I befriended um, a Muslim Sultan. He was kind of cool. he was a Sultan over seven villages, thousands of people and and he was an old man of about seventy eight years old at the time. Uh, he has since passed on, but at the time, you know, I was overseas, and he kind of became my adoptive father. Uh, we got along really well, he was a really funny guy, um, but he had not seen at that moment. Uh, you know, a a large segment of his family for decades, since there was no transportation out to the village of his origins. And uh, it was far out there, There where no roads, there was really only a path cut through the jungle. And, uh, but I had just bought this old Toyota Land Cruiser, 1978 Toyota Land Cruiser with a big Jeep with big knobby tires. And so I told him I would take him. And so we piled a bunch of the villagers into the Jeep, and we cut out through the jungle, and hours later, we ended up in his birthplace, this tiny little village tucked in the mountains of Sumatra. It was really kind of a wild ride. Um, we spent three or four days out there talking, bathing in the river, drinking coffee, hanging out with his family. And when it came time to go home, we were told by somebody that was traveling back there uh, that there was this giant landslide uh, you know, over the, over the road, um, and if you want to call it a road, and it was blocked by this landslide, and it was, there was this giant boulder, they said, in the middle of the road, and with all the bravado of a young, naive American, you know, in my new Jeep, I, you know, I said, well, no problem, I got a Jeep, we'll just drive over that landslide, and, I, and so uh, they urged me not to go, but I wouldn't listen, because <laughs> you, you know, some of you know me, I'm stubborn, right, and I wouldn't listen, I set out, and I drove for a few hours only to come upon the largest like cartoon sized boulder it's like a cartoon it was weird i've ever seen in the middle of the road It's just a giant round boulder just blocking the road and and i felt sort of sheepish there was no going around and there was a drop off to the left down to the ocean it was like a cliff you couldn't and there was a cliff on the right going up so i couldn't get around this thing at all now i'll have to share the end of that story uh at a later date because it was it was funny but that experience served as a life lesson for me, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but let me say that we know that America is a nation of self-made people, right? The, we, we know that the Mayflower set sail on 1620 with 102 people aboard. There were, you know, three of which were pregnant, by the way. Uh, one of them gave birth on the journey, so all in all, there were, you know, 103 bodies. You could even say 105 bodies on that ship, you know, and the first half of the journey went fine, but the weather went bad on the second half and they had a broken mast and they had leaks and they had a lack of food and they had sickness and death. And it wasn't an easy journey physically or emotionally for these people. Now think about hopping on that ship with kids in tow, not really knowing where you were going to go and where you'd end up, what would happen if you'd even get to your destination and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, you were leaving all familiarity and comfort behind knowing you that you'd never return. And, um, and I'm oh, sorry, I'm getting little notifications here. Sorry, I gotta, but, but, you know, you think about those kind of people. They were, they were a tough breed. They were risk takers. They weren't weak minded. They weren't easily scared or, or meek. Uh, they were hardy people that kind of hoped on a dream and made things happen. They were exceptional people in their ordinary lives, earning their place in the new world with courage, and no one gave them America. They fought against the elements and sickness and even each other at times, and they cleared fields, and they established government and law, and they planted crops, and they sweat and bled, and they sacrificed for all that they wanted to see and, and saw before before themselves, you know. And I, I realize not all of our nation's history is commendable. We, we know that, but much of it is, and, and and I just want to say that a pregnant mother hopping on the Mayflower, hopping on this ship to go to the New World at that moment in history, is quite inspiring. Um, but you know, this forged in us a strong individualistic worldview as a country, right? As people, uh, you remember the movie Far and Away with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It, it depicts that spirit. And one of the in one scene, the settlers. Uh, formed a line, and they were on foot or horseback or in Conestoga, um, and they and the gun goes off, and they race out to stick their flag into this special plot of land that each of them had eyed up prior to the race, and, and uh, they had to get there first, right? And this was called staking your claim. It was a brutal race, and we all cheered as Tom rode and ran and crawled to his spot and jammed his flag into the dirt, and it was... It was a symbol of the American spirit. He he did it. He worked for what he wanted. He claimed it. He was self-made. He was an individual. And we relate to that as Americans. And that's what made it a good movie. It it struck right at the heart of our individualistic worldview. You know, win the land, win the woman, uh, claim it. You know, you're the individual. And since then, we like to think that we've developed one of the greatest nations in the history of mankind. That our accomplishments reach farther than any other nation in history. That we tackle seemingly insurmountable odds every day in technology and finance and medicine. We've gone to the moon, we've gone to Mars, and we've even gone back to the split second, you know, uh, before, um, you know, time, you know, with the Hubble State Space Telescope. It's crazy. Our computers hold, hold libraries of information. I think I have like 20, 50, 20 to 50,000 books on my computer alone. Doctors reattach severed limbs, they they repair hearts, they prolong life, they blast cancer out of a body with radiation, and, um, you know, they control moods with drugs. Our educational system is top-notch, you know, master's degrees, doctorates, and salaries to match. There is nothing that we can't do. Nothing at all can hold us back. You know where I'm going. One microscopic virus grinds our economy to a halt. An unseen sort of minuscule enemy takes away all of our freedom right now and is devastating our economy. But even before that happened, we could have asked ourselves, why do we have so much devastation, relational devastation in society? Why are we so polarized? Why is it that the USA leads in murder and suicide and abortion rates among industrialized nations why is it that 60 percent of children will grow up living at some point in a single parent home why has the divorce rate tripled since 1970 and maybe even more my stats might be old school shootings and drugs and prostitution and pornography and 64 percent of us are overweight or obese myself included by the way violent offenders make up for 63 percent of our prison populations why can't we get along right? You know, at holidays, we might feel more judged by relatives than encouraged and loved. We, you know, why can't you make up with that person who hurt you years ago? Why can't you forgive that sin from years past? Why do you feel so lonely and depressed at times? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why can't I control myself? Why am I so angry? Why is it that I can't get along with people? You know, we glory in accomplishment, but sometimes we come to a rock in the middle of the road of life, we, and we have to say at that moment that all of our gifts, all of our abilities, all of our money and knowledge just aren't enough. All I am isn't enough to fix this relationship or lose weight or bring change or save this marriage or keep my children safe from a virus, but you know, quit this or that you know, habit or just be satisfied. In relationships and self-expectation and politics and alcohol and drugs and the death or sickness of a loved one or with children or family or marriage, we come to the end of ourselves, faced with a rock in our path that we just cannot get around. That was a long lead-in. But now we're at John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha, two sisters, are faced with such an obstacle in their life. Their brother is sick and dying, and there's not anything they can do about it but wipe his forehead and watch him wither. And they're powerless over this situation, and they come to a rock blocking their path, and soon their brother's going to be on the other side of that rock, both figuratively and literally. He will be dead. He will be entombed with a large rock rolled in front of his gravesite. But Martha and Mary have an ace in the hole. They have a relationship with Jesus who actually knows and loves their brother. And he's healed others, and surely he'll come, he'll run, and heal Lazarus, right? But time is of the essence, and death looms in his life, and they have to send for Jesus right now since he's about 25 miles away, and he has to walk all the way there. Now, I want you to realize that when I go backpacking, I do anywhere from 10 to 30 miles in a day. So 25 miles in a day is quite a long way to to walk in the hot sun, especially. So they send for him, and and, and they use these words in verse 3. It says, Lord, the one that you love is sick. They send away, and then they wait. And he's healed, you know, other people. He's fed 5,000. He's changed water to wine, for goodness sakes. He's done things for people he's not even really that close with, or he doesn't even know. Surely he'll run, and he'll help Lazarus, the one that he loves. He'll rush there, right? You can imagine these women saying to Lazarus at that moment, don't worry, we've sent for Jesus, and he will be here really soon, and, and just hang on, and he'll heal you. But a day goes by, and then another day, and Jesus doesn't come, and Lazarus at some point dies. He's dead. If only Jesus had come, right? But he didn't, and the stones rolled in front of that tomb forever, locking away the dead body of their brother. And in the Judean heat, bodies decay very quickly, and they were usually buried the day of their demise. And they say that a person can only survive three days without water, And Lazarus will have been in this tomb for four days, at least before Jesus shows up. So there's no question that he was dead. And Jews even believe that after three days, the soul left the body. So now he was not only physically dead, but his cadaver was now a soulless thing, according to Jewish tradition. You know, imagine their anguish, uh, you know, maybe a little perturbed with Jesus for not rushing to the aid of their brother. I imagine the messenger ran to deliver that message, and maybe he even returned before Jesus did. Maybe he came back and he says, well, Jesus said he'll come, but he doesn't seem to be too much in a hurry, (laughs) right? And then Mary runs out to meet Jesus when she hears of his arrival, uh, saying in verse 21, if you want to look there, it says, uh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can almost hear the frustration and the emotion in her voice. If you had been here, but now there's a stone, a cartoon-sized boulder between me and my brother forever, and I can't get around that. However, she does know, to say, you know, know enough to say in verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, that sounds like a great statement of faith on her part, you know, as if she knew he could do anything, even raise the dead. But this story is more about the building of faith of these people, of Mary and Martha and the others that are there mourning Lazarus. Because even though she makes that statement, there's nothing which indicates she expects Jesus to raise her brother from the dead. Because Jesus says in verse 23, he says, Your brother will rise again. And verse 24, Martha answers, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. In other words, I know he's gone, you know, you know, but a stone locks him away, right? But I'll see him again at the end of time. You know, she betrays her limited faith in who and what Jesus is and of what he's capable of, right? She doesn't believe it's possible that Jesus can do anything about this problem of death. Even he can't get around this one, right? That's what she thinks. But in verse 25, Jesus said to her, and this is the most important statement. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? So Mary and Martha and all the other mourners there have been presented with the greatest of obstacles, death. Now, I want to ask you, let's bring it down to us. I want to ask you a, question, a few questions. <clears throat> Do you ever get frustrated with Jesus when you're facing your own obstacles in life? Have you ever wanted him to just give you a clear answer and direction, <laughs> right? To, to outline the exact plan of action that he's going to take in your life so you can have peace and sleep at night, right? Are you facing some sort of a boulder in the path which you can't get around? And you know, <clears throat> and you call on Jesus, and you expect him to run to you, and you, you expect him to sit down and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and then lay out a plan for you. And you want him to run since you are closer to him than anybody else, right? And we want him to be our crystal ball and tell the future and, and what he'll do to resolve our problem, but he doesn't. He doesn't. All he says is cryptic things like, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in me? And we say, sure, I believe, but I want to know what you're going to do right now. But Jesus doesn't tell. He just continues to ask questions of trust. Do you believe that I have power over even the worst of your problems? He's leading us into into a life of faith A deeper faith which finds peace even while standing in front of our boulders. Even while locked up with this virus going on. You know, the pop culture view of God is one of, and this is a big term, I don't mean to get all heady on you, but it's one of moralistic therapeutic deism right? And what I mean by that is that we view God as a a loving, good God, and he just wants us to be happy, and he helps us with our problems when we need it, and he wants us to be kind of loving and good like him, but he's not particularly demanding or judgmental, and he basically doesn't impose his will or his way of doing things on us. We just kind of get to choose how we want to live. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. That's pop culture's view of God. The biblical portrait of God is very different, and I'm not even going to touch all that that is right now, but it, 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 the biblical view of God is, says that he is Lord, then he calls us to a higher standard made possible by his grace. He doesn't just take our attention away, but he is dealing with evil, and he's walking w- with us through it right right now that he allows us to experience the pain of loss, as it says in Ecclesiastes 7, one of my most favorite passages. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. We spend all our time avoiding that kind of feeling, that kind of pain. But God says it's good for us to feel it at times. It's good for what we're feeling and experiencing right now, the frustration of being locked up. Why doesn't God just take the coronavirus away? I don't know. I really don't know. But questions like that only get us caught in philosophical quicksand, don't they? The real question is, do I trust him even in the face of financial ruin and death? His timeline is not my timeline. My emergency is not his emergency. But do I believe he is working for the glory of his name and the benefit of humankind all the time? You know, obstacles are not necessarily bad in our lives. Rather, they are opportunities to see that our faith is strengthened and widened. You know, I've had to make difficult decisions in my life, and oftentimes I'm faced with a problem which I feel like I just can't get around. And typically I stand in front of my boulders and I get anxious and I fight to make something happen, and I'm impatient and I take control even though I'm powerless and I kick and cry in prayer asking Jesus to lay out a plan, but he doesn't do it. And all he says to me is, be patient. I'm coming. (laughs) I'm coming. I'm coming in my own time and in my own way. And when I come to address your boulder, it'll be in the way that you don't expect. I remember one time uh, we were meeting at a different building, and, and I got a call that week to say that they were starting construction on the building and, and that they had started it without telling me that week. And so we had no place to meet for our kids' church. It was crazy. And I had exhausted every avenue I thought out there on the main line to find a building to meet in. I, I had no choices. But God stuck me next to a guy, another pastor at an event that week, who said, oh, just come meet at our place. And that's where we started meeting, how we started meeting at our current spot now, which we're not doing, obviously, at this moment. But the very last moment, stretching me to have faith that God can answer my questions. You know, Martha answers in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world, which is still really not the answer that Jesus sought from her. It was just as cryptic as his answer was, as if to say, sure, sure, you're the Messiah, whatever. (laughs) But you still can't do anything about this problem. This is too big for even you. And then Mary's called over, and she says the same thing in verse 32. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And there, so you notice how assured they are of his power on this side of death. You could have healed him if you had been here when he was still alive, Jesus. But now all hope is gone, and their problem is symbolized by a large stone, which they just can't get, get around. And it says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, I want to say right there, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, that's very tame language in the English. The original Greek expresses a deep anger in Jesus. Now, it's not a deep anger at Mary or Martha, of course not. But, but a deep anger at the pain and the suffering which sin has caused by bringing death in this into this world and hitting and, and, and affecting those he loves. And so he weeps and he has emotion, and it's, he shows himself to really love these people. And in verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So God weeps for our pain. We're standing right in the middle middle of our struggles, weeping for the pain our boulders bring us. However, there are some there who are saying the same thing that Mary and Martha did. Look at verse 37. It says, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man? Remember, he did that a few uh, weeks back and uh, I forget John chapter what, but could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You know, he can do all that, but he's met his match with death. He has no mastery over the worst of things. That's what they think. Now, isn't that how you feel right now, it, maybe to a larger or smaller degree, concerning this pandemic? That if he had only showed up when I needed him at the right time, Right, I'd be okay if he'd come when I wanted him to come, when I thought it was so urgent Then all would have been well and it's too late now. He can't do anything at this point about my problems. They're too far gone. They're too large. They're decaying behind my stone way too long. But Jesus stands in front of that stone, and he says in verse 39, take away the stone. Take away the stone. In other words, do your part. Roll the stone of your heart away, all of you together. Let me in. Let me peer into the worst of your problems. You rolled that stone in front of your heart. You made that choice, right? You made that vow. Now you remove it together as a community get behind the stones of your hearts and encourage each other to roll them away shoulder the burden together helping each other to open the wounds and allow Jesus in to do his work but we don't want to do that usually we turn to Jesus and we say the same that Mary that Martha does in verse 39 it says but lord by this time there's a bad odor he stinks right for he has been in there for four days. Jesus, you don't want to go in there. My problems stink. They've been locked away for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, behind this stone for good reason. There's too much behind that stone. They're too far gone, and I vowed, I made a spiritual vow long ago that I didn't want to deal with this. Please don't make me open it all up again. I've dealt with it in my own way. I've locked it away so that I can't smell it. But have we really dealt with it? The way we deal with our problems, which seem so insurmountable in our past, is to lock them away usually, decaying and festering behind some large immovable stone, right? The internal vows that we take. And you can't roll that stone away yourself. You put it. You may have put it there, but you can't roll it away yourself. Maybe other people helped you put it there, but it's going to take other people to help you move it away. It's going to take counseling maybe, or just talking about it with other mature believers or praying with other mature believers. It's going to take a willingness to work on yourself, a vulnerability, an openness, a courage to face those dead parts of yourself which need resurrection so badly and to have others shoulder your burden with you and push that stone from your heart to allow Jesus in and access to your worst smelling of problems. But we say no. And Jesus answers us as he does Martha in verse 40. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I love that. And then continuing in verses 41 through 44, it says, So they took away the stone. They got behind it. They rolled it away, right? And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank, you, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know, we try to ignore our problems, hoping that they will just stay locked away. They never do, by the way. We stuff our past pain, we hide our insecurities, we harbor bitterness in a dark tomb of our lives, of our hearts. And to keep that tomb closed would have Cause Lazarus just to keep on rotting, to get worse and worse and worse. And keeping our problems closed off from Jesus will cause them to only fester. They'll not stay locked away. We'll have to work in community to open ourselves up, giving him access. Now, listen to this. This is probably the most important thing I want to say. Believing nothing can be done about your problems. Is the problem. Believing nothing can be done about your problems is the problem. Isolation is the enemy. And I don't mean the isolation that we we are experiencing right now with social distancing, but when I isolate my heart from people, my isolate my heart from Jesus, and we turn away from the, the only one who has a solution, and we keep him separated from our problems, you know. At, and it betrays that inner belief that he can 't help us, like a little kid clutching a broken toy, and you know and i 'm there 's Dad asking him to you know give it to me, I can fix it, no, don 't touch it, you can 't fix it daddy that 's what we always feel like now we have to remember jesus didn 't heal or heal and raise everyone from the dead who had died during that time he just didn 't go around doing that all the time, and he has promised to raise those in faith. Uh, whose whose faith in, is in him at the last day. He clearly used this situation to establish his authority over death and to build faith in others at that last moment, right? He uses this moment to say that I am the resurrection and the life. And we got to understand he's God, not me. It's his choice where and how he'll work. It's his choice when when he'll come and in what power he'll come and what authority he'll come. However, he doesn't want us to lock away our issues, to have them just fester. He wants to open us up on this faith journey, bringing bringing life back to those deadened parts of ourselves. Because that's life abundant, and that's what he's promised. When we've lived behind a boulder for what seems like an eternity, there is hope. Jesus is coming, and Jesus raises the dead. We saw that last week at Easter. Amen to that. You know, he's angered at the death and the loss of life in us. He stands in front of that stone, weeping over loss and pain. He battles for us. He he has victory on the cross. That war is won, yet the battle still goes on until his return. He's in the process right now of reversing that order of that sin and death is brought into the world, and we will, we are promised to see final victory. You know, if you've ever seen the, read or seen the Narnia movies, spring didn't come to Narnia without a fight, did it? The spring which emerged out of the frozen wilderness in, in, in those stories was progressive in nature. It was coming a little bit at a time. And Jesus will reveal his glory, and we need to help each other to roll the stone away to allow him to work. We want to be a part of this, not a hindrance to it. None of us wants to be governed by fear, keeping our rotting cadavers locked away, which only continually resurface in our hearts. We want it, it's like the walking dead in us, really. We want to be a community of encouragement and of care of each other, enough to roll those stones away and watch Jesus raise the dead in our lives, allowing him to renew those deadened parts of us which we've locked away for so long. Walking with Jesus in the context of community flies right in the face of that individualistic American spirit that I talked about in the beginning of this sermon. Realize, though, that we always come to the end of ourselves. We're not as great and strong as we think. <laughs> Refusing to face our issues, dealing with it in our own, never really works. Jesus demands faith, not because he's some prideful, arrogant thing, but because he wants us to live in the peace of knowing he is actually the resurrection and the life. He does have the power to, over the worst of, our, of things in our lives and, and and, and we have to allow them to, in there to work. So how do you roll that stone away? Well, I can't give you every answer right now, but you, you can do that in a number of different ways in community with others. Firstly, I, I want to remind you, remember, isolation is destructive. Connect with people. Make phone calls. Get on a, a video chat with people right now. Talk with people. Anyone who decides that they don't want to talk about their issues invites the evil one into their heart to take over their thinking, and he only wants to bring you death. Jesus works through the body of Christ in amazing ways, and it urges us to confess our sins to one another for this very reason. Don't ever think that someone is better than you, or they, they won't understand your issues. You'll be surprised. Everybody else's heart is just as crooked as yours. But also don't think that Jesus will not call you to transformation of your heart either. He is not a moralistic, therapeutic counselor just there to make you feel better. He is calling you higher, which is always better for you and for everyone else around you. Jesus works through the body of believers to bring life. Corporate worship, community groups, prayer ministry, quiet times, spiritual formation practices, confession, counseling, and even medications at times. God works through our doctors. They all, all that stuff might be needed sometimes to move that stone away and work on that issue in your life. You know, I want to remind you that we have about 10 uh, uh, spiritual mentors at our church that if you want to... Uh, email spiritualmentors. Uh, at 68org and ask for a spiritual mentor. to get hooked up with somebody. They can help you walk through some ways to talk through your spiritual walk. And they're really good people. Secondly, uh, find his voice in Scripture, giving you the ability to identify falsehood in the world. And this is why your personal quiet time in the Word of God is so important for spiritual formation, to recognize falsehood from truth. Because many of us believe lies about ourselves and others, which are contrary to the Scriptures. And those are the dead cadavers behind that stone. Replace lies with truth directly from Scripture, truth about who Jesus is, truth about who yourself, yourself is, and truth about others in light of him. Refer to the last three pages about who you are in Christ at the end of our sermon last week. The more you know who you are in Christ, the more your heart, your thinking, and your behavior will reflect your true identity, that abundant life, that wonderful life. So remember, Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. Now, I, I, when I was younger, I memorized it this way. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love that verse. Romans 12.1 and 2, actually, you, can, you could uh, memorize right now.